Kevin and I got married, we bought our first kitchen table. It was just the two of us, and we would share meals and life lessons together. Eventually, we had three kids, and each one of them pulled up a chair to the table, and we shared those life lessons with them, the things that would make or break them. But that wasn't the end. No, it wasn't. We had number four, Jaden, and he pulled up a chair to the table. And we, once again, shared our life lessons with him. And so we're incredibly excited to have you join with us today for one of the four core teachings. Today is Puzzled by the Bible. It's an overview from Genesis to Revelation. And do you remember when Stuart Heller yeah, came to 12 did, Stone? Actually. Oh my goodness, he was a non-practicing Jew. Never really had understood the Bible, but this drew him in. His wife and two twin kids were attending and they finally got him to come and God absolutely opened up his mind, just transformed everything for him. He would tell you that. So we can't wait for you to get this teaching today. Grab your teaching notes, grab your Bible, take good notes. This is really how you witness as well as how you understand the Bible. This, all the way back from 2011. So can you figure out a puzzle with just a handful of pieces? Not hardly. What you need is the big picture first. You need to see the front of the puzzle box, right? You got to see like, okay, what does this look like? What's the big picture? And then once you see that, you have an idea of, of how to utilize the little pieces, where they might go. It's kind of a guide. Well, for many people in the course of their spiritual journey, they've attended church, they've heard bits and pieces about the Bible, but all we end up often is with a handful of pieces. So we make guesses about God. We make guesses about life and eternity from a handful of pieces. And maybe because nobody's ever taken an opportunity to lay out for you the big picture, the front of the puzzle box. So welcome to Puzzled by the Bible. That's where we're going for these seven weeks, and you are invited in for the series to understand what God is doing, because God is very much on purpose. God is very much on time, and God is accomplishing all that he intended from beginning to now. And he wants you to know the story. He wants you to understand what he's doing. He wants you to live the little pieces of your everyday life in light of the big picture. Kind of like driving. If you drive, you, you know what I'm talking about. Then outside your vehicle, it seems like, is one kind of world. And then inside your vehicle is like a separate other world. And when you're driving, you got to pay attention to the big picture. Outside the vehicle, the road conditions, the weather conditions, wild animals, Thousands of people driving all around you, high speeds. I mean, you got to stay engaged with the big picture. But sometimes that's difficult to do because all the little pieces are the activity going on inside your vehicle, yeah? I mean, moms, you know what that's about. You got the kids and they're just driving you nuts inside the vehicle. And you can get distracted. You can get absorbed in the little pieces of that activity and disconnect from the big picture. Dangerous. See, we know that happens in conversation in a vehicle. We know if you got your, 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 your coffee, your Starbucks, you got your MP3 player, you got your texting. In fact, church is a place where we should just have the freedom to confess. This is the place where you have the freedom to confess. So let's just have a group confession here in all the campuses. How many of you will confess, I have texted while driving? Put your hand up. Just look. Yeah, there you go. Don't you feel better for getting that off your chest? My hand was up. See, but we know what goes with that is high risk because you can get distracted in this little piece of communication 
and disconnect from the big picture. I'll show you what I mean. Here's about 20 seconds of video. Motorcyclist with a camera on his helmet. You'll get the point. Check it out. That's rough, man. That just happened. You can see she's jumping out of the truck, and she's going to say, oh, I'm sorry, I'm sorry, I'm sorry. You see his bike sitting underneath the truck behind her. And what happened? A driver got distracted, got wrapped up in the activity of, of her own mind, what's going on inside her vehicle, and took the motorcyclist out. That's really quite a video because he got leapt up in the air, practically landed on his feet. You know he, the guy's in shock because accidents happen when you get distracted by the little pieces and you disconnect from the big picture. God is saying as you drive your life, do not get so wrapped up in the little pieces of your life that you disconnect from the big picture because the big picture is happening. You ought to know it. Adjust your life to it. Let it be a guide for the little pieces of your life. So, let's go get this. Let's look at the overview of the Bible from beginning to end. Grab your bulletins. Pull out the teaching notes here in all the campuses. Flip to the back of those. It talks about the mirror image. You can even take the Bibles out. Use them kind of as a, a, a writing tool, desktop. Get the pen there. And when we turn to Scripture, you'll have it right there. Let's get after this. Because we're going to unfold what God teaches us in the Bible. Now, the Bible calls itself the inspired Word of God. And we're not going to defend that. We're going to define it. We don't have time for seven weeks to defend all of that. And you might say, well, I, 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 I think I'd like to put the Bible on trial. Okay, but, but you can't put it on trial until you've heard the case, Okay. So let's hear the case. Give it the next seven weeks. Understand the overview of the Bible. And then if you want to put the Bible on trial, have at it. But first, hear the case. And I'm going to take it to the whiteboard, and you get to the back of your notes. And let's walk through an overview of the Bible. Now, the Bible is divided first into two sections, divisions, if you will. And you have this on the back of your notes. And so you can follow along and add notes as you desire. The first half is called the OT, the Old Testament. For you sports fans, OT, Old Testament, not overtime. So just stay with me. So the first half is the Old Testament, and then it's divided, and the second half is NT, New Testament. You can write that out if that helps you. Now, a good way to understand the Bible is that testament can be replaced by the word contract. You could literally call it the old contract and the new contract. And as the Bible is laid out in this fashion, let me give you kind of some data that might be helpful. The Bible is 66 books. It's 39 Old Testament, 27 New Testament. It is 66 books written by 40-some different authors over 1,600 years of a timeline. And yet, in all of that, the miracle is that it is one Story. It is what story? One story. And by the way, if some of you who are believers, followers of Christ, you've been in environments where you understand the overview of the Bible, and you're like, well, well I think I kind of get this. Well, then let me challenge you, because many here have never heard this before. Many have never understood it in their life. But if for, for some of you that have, look, at, instead of being the student of the series, become a teacher. Become a teacher of this. You don't know it until you can teach it. Teach it to your kids. 
Teach it to a neighbor, a friend, a coworker. People don't understand the Bible. You learn this well enough so you can teach it. And some of you, you need to be challenged in this. You need to go deeper in reading. We're going to give you reading to do along the way, but it's very light reading. Some of you are saying, well, tell me, if I really wanted to dive into an overview of the Bible, what would I read? I'd give you six books out of 66. And I'd have you read Genesis and Exodus, two Old Testament books, Luke and Acts, in the New Testament, and then First Peter and Revelation. I'd say, you read those six books, that's going to take you further. And for some of you, you need a bonus challenge, and here it is. Memorize the books of the Bible. Over this series, memorize the books of the Bible so you can move through the Bible. Learn all 39 Old Testament, 27 New Testament, so that when I give a page number, you don't need that. I just say it's in the book of Leviticus, and you know right where that is. There's your challenge. Let's get to this. So we have the old contract and the new contract. There are five events that happen, five major events in the Old Testament. Once you understand these events, they set up an understanding of the whole of the Bible. They're right there in your notes. You're not going to be able to read my writing, but they will put it on screen so you can fill in the blank. First we have, it all begins with God and redeemed man, excuse me, God and righteous man in paradise. This is the old familiar Adam and Eve in paradise. It's beautiful. It's the Garden of Eden. It's everything we we all want to go back to. And God creates mankind, and this is an awesome, beautiful place. And this is the beginning. This is where everything starts. God is the creator, and God the creator of paradise. Next major event. Satan and sin enter And now we have the unfortunate story of Adam and Eve in the garden where she took a bite of the apple and everything goes ugly and it's the fall of mankind. It's the next major event. The third major event is the world is judged and destroyed. That familiar story is Noah and the flood. Builds the ark. All the animals come in. He and his family are rescued. Everybody else dies. Rough story. Next major event is the one world government. This is the event where mankind following building back generations after Noah, rises up and says we're going to build a tower and rule ourselves and and we are our own people and, and we'll kind of be our own gods. And God confuses the languages. And watch this. Chapters 1 through 11 in the book of Genesis sets up the key to understanding the entire Bible. If you don't know the first 11 chapters of the rest of the Bible, it doesn't even make any sense. Most people have never read it, don't even understand it. We're going to go there today. The next major event, in fact, the rest of the Old Testament, is built around the 12 tribes, which is literally the nation of Israel, called God's holy people. And the reason that is, is because mankind has been separated from God as a result of sin, and now God is setting apart a people holy unto himself. And in that environment, we learn about this contract, which becomes in time the old contract, the contract God sets up with the nation of Israel. Now, once you understand these five major events that ascend in the Old Testament, you will understand the whole of the Bible, and here's why. Because they all turn in the coming of Jesus Christ. And Jesus Christ has been prophesied. All of this has been looking toward his coming. And in the book of Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, and those four gospels of the New Testament, we have the coming of God in human flesh. And God is fulfilling the prophecy, looking back on the contract that he made with us, and establishing the new contract. And watch this. This is how simply profound it is. God is very much on purpose. The events that happen in the Old Testament happen in a mirror image, reverse descending order in the New Testament. Identical mirror image. 
Here's how it works. The 12 tribes of the nation of Israel are a mere image to what happens in the New Testament. The 12 disciples, it is the church, God's holy people. And the parallels from the Old Testament nation of Israel, the predominant time invested from Genesis 12 to the end of the Old Testament, are paralleled in essence with the book of Acts following through the book of Jude, the majority of the New Testament. And the next major event, by no mistake, is the coming of a one world government, which is by no mistake a parallel mirror image to the next event that occurs. And so everything is moving toward a one world government. And in case you're unclear, you are here. You are in the time of the church, and the next major event is the movement toward a one world government, which used to sound crazy and now seems obvious, huh? We'll talk about that. What follows, the next major event that Scripture prophesies is the world is judged and destroyed. God describes that in the Old Testament or in this season of time, the world was judged and destroyed by flood. This will be judged and destroyed by fire. Then Satan and sin exit. So here's the parallel, the mere image. Satan and sin entered. Satan and sin will exit. God will put a limit on the power and the influence of Satan. Lucifer, who fell, who now leads us into sin, invites us to join his kingdom. And God will cast him, literally scripture describes, into hell. It will be the end of his reign, the end of his power. And God will bring all things to fulfillment, the parallel, God and redeemed Man in paradise. And God will bring all things back to full circle. Literally, the tree of life that's described right here and the book of Genesis in the beginning that we lost access to, we get access to that very tree of life at the end. And what God began, he will finish, and it is a mere image. And once you understand this, you know where you are in the Bible. You understand the one big picture of what God is doing. It is profound. And there are three things that God settles for us in the first four major events. And if you do not understand and settle these three things, you will not understand God, the Bible, your life, or eternity. you got to get this in play. So let's turn our attention, turn over your notes, and let's unpack the three things that the first four major events lay out for us. Here we go. The first of the three things that are settled in Genesis 1 through 11 very first one, God is without equal. Here all the campuses, say it with me. God is without equal. Let's do it again. You weren't ready. Here we go. One, two, three. God is without equal. Genesis chapter 1, verse 1. Page 1 should be the easiest one to get to. Here we go. In the beginning. Genesis 1, 1. In the beginning, God. The Bible declares right there, God is. There's no debate, just declared. Besides, it's God's book, God's writing, and God's telling us, uh, I exist, and we're going to start with my existence. You were not there, I was, I exist, I already know that, so I'm just letting you know. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth, period. And, and sometimes it's just worth pausing, which I will do for a moment, and sharing just a little joke that's always helped me and I think is, is worth a moment. Here we go. One day, a group of scientists 
got together and decided that man had come a long way and no longer needed God. So they picked, up, picked out one scientist to go and tell God that they were done with him. The scientist walked up to God and said, God, we've decided that we no longer need you. We're to the point where we can clone people and do many miraculous things. So why don't you just go away? God listened very patiently to the man. After the scientist was done talking, God said, very well. How about this? Let's say we have a man-making contest. To which the scientist replied, okay, great. But God added, now, we're going to do this just like I did back in the old days with Adam. Scientist said, sure, no problem. And he bent down and gathered himself a handful of dirt. And God looked at him and said, no, 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 no. You go get your own dirt. I like that one. You see, creating something out of nothing is a God-sized thing. And we get all messed up in our world thinking that science versus God is the big issue. It is not. God is the author of science. Science is God's gift to us for our enjoyment, our discovery. What's intriguing to me is that when we discover something... We are more impressed with ourselves for discovering it, like DNA, rather than to be impressed with the God who created it. That's a curious thing. But know this, that God is the author of freedom of religion. And you all thought it was the U.S. Constitution. No, it's not. It's God. In the beginning, God gave you a free will. And you get to decide what you believe. Now listen, you don't get to change what is. You don't get to change truth but you get to decide what you're going to believe. And then in the end, you'll be held accountable for it. So there's a freedom. And some people have concluded that, well, there's no God. Some have concluded that, that, that there's a Big Bang theory. Theory. And, and that there's an evolution. Theory. Theory. That, that, that somehow things have evolved from one species to another to a higher level. Now, the reason science calls it a theory is because nobody's proven it. So why can't we have honest conversations and call it what it is? It's a theory. Don't teach it like it's a conclusion. It's a theory, and every theory takes what? Faith. Let me help you if you don't know. Every theory takes what? Faith. See, by faith, you got to buy into there's no God. By faith, you got to buy into a Big Bang theory. By faith, you got to buy into evolution. And by faith, you got to buy into creation. By faith, you are basing your life on faith. Frankly, I don't have a lot of faith. So I believe in God. Because for me, I look at the evidence. I need it to be logical, rational, and consistent with life. And it points to the existence of God. Science has never proven the existence of God. It has never disproven the existence of God because it can't be done. Because it all takes faith. And here's what God says. You can believe whatever you want. By the end of your life, and there will be an end, you'll be judged according to what you believe. And God says, the fool, Proverbs 24, 1, the fool says in his heart, there is no God. What you believe never changes what is. God is. That's how he declares it. That's what you need to know about Genesis 1 through 11. This is how it leads. And God is without equal. He is without what? Equal. Meaning to say, God says, well, since I'm the creator, and I am, <laughs> I created everything, the hardware and the software. 
I gave you the instructions manual. This is how life works. That means if he's God, he gets to tell us what to do. And we don't like that. We don't like being told what to do. Can you own this? I mean, just, just take a moment. Is, I'm, I'm not sure you're owning this. Don't own it for your neighbor, just for yourself. How many you raise your hand to, I don't like being told what to do. How many would own that? Okay? Now you see the many people around you who didn't raise their hand? Do you know why they didn't raise their hand? Because they don't like being told what to do. So I'm not gonna raise my hand, stupid pastor. Stuff you gotta raise your hand, repeat after me, <laughs> be our puppet. I'm not your puppet, buddy. Because I don't like to be told what to do. We all get it. I don't like to be told what to do. And that's a problem because there is a God who gets to tell us what to do. And we like to be equal. So you get to Satan and sin enter, and what's really going on in that story? Mankind's created, given a perfect environment, a wonderful place to live, all the blessings and generosity of God, and whoo, what do we do? We try and be equal to God, and it all blows up. We try it a second time. We all become gods and equal to God, we think in our own mind and our own selves, and it leads to Noah and the flood, and the world is judged and destroyed. And we blow up again. We tried a third time, Tower of Babel. We're going to set up our own kingdom, our own, our, our, our own tower, our own, oh, and what happens? It all blows up again. Three times, three times we demonstrate that we can be equal to God, and every time it blows up on us because we're not God, because he has no equal. But if you were God, you wouldn't have so many disappointments. Depression, breakdowns, setbacks, broken marriages, families, careers, disease, and you'd never die. If you, listen, if you haven't figured out who God is yet, you should have at least by now figured out who he isn't. And you're not God. And neither is anybody else you know. And get this, trying to play God is sin. Just write that one down right there in your notes. Trying to play God is sin. Do you get that? Trying to play God is sin. Because I don't even understand this sin thing. Well, I just explained it to you. It's when you try and play God. It's when you dismiss him and you make your own decisions. You set up all. In fact, it's what leads to the second thing that Genesis 1 to 11 settles. Sin, here it is, sin leads to death. Say it with me. Everyone together here at all the campuses. Sin leads to death. Whew. Genesis. Right back there. Chapter 2. Page 2. We're moving now, aren't we? We're just cruising right through the Bible. Genesis chapter 2, page 2, verse 15. God creates man and Adam, and, and then it tells us, verse 15, then the Lord took the man, put him in the garden of Eden to work it and take care of it. And the Lord God commanded the man, you are free to eat from any tree in the garden. See the generosity of God? See how he gives you everything you need for your enjoyment? He gives you everything. The Lord God commanded the man, you are free to eat from any tree in the garden, verse 17, but you must not eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. For when you eat of it, you will surely what? Surely what? Surely die. Now it seems we should take a moment and have the obligatory Adam and Eve jokes. So here we go. God went down to the Garden of Eden, paradise to see how Adam was getting on. 
What do you think of life, Adam? Asked God. Well, said Adam, works a little difficult, and it's a bit lonely. Lonely, lonely. Well, God said, don't worry. I'm going to create a woman. (laughs) She'll wash and cook for you. (laughs) She'll fulfill your every fantasy. In fact, she'll do everything you can imagine. Wow, that sounds great, said Adam. How, How much will this woman cost me? God says, I was thinking an arm and a leg. Well, that sounds a little steep, says Adam. What could I get for a rib? <laughs> I don't write them, I just read them. And one, just to turn to the other side, when God created him, Adam, he said, that's good, but I can do better than that, and he created woman. Okay, there. Now we all feel better, and I got friends again. And we have God and righteous man in paradise. And when God creates man and puts him in paradise, he gives him everything they need. And he says, here's all the trees, here's all the fruit, here's everything you need to enjoy life. Now, here's the one thing you need to know. Don't touch, don't eat from, don't mess with, don't toy with. But ultimately, do not eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, for when you do, you will surely die. Check it out. Page three. Chapter three. Read down. The serpent comes, more crafty, Satan in the form of the serpent, tempting mankind. Verse 2, the woman says to the serpent, we may eat fruit from the tree in the garden, but God did say, you must not eat fruit from the tree that is in the middle of the garden, and you must not touch it or you will what? Look at verse 4. You will what? You will die. And verse 4 says, you will not surely die, the serpent said to the woman, and that's the lie we have bought ever since. Verse 5, for God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God. Ah, equal again. Knowing good and evil. When the woman saw that the fruit of the tree was good for food and pleasing to the eyes, she also, and also desirable for gaining wisdom, she took some and ate it. She also gave some to her husband, who was a victim. Oh, I'm sorry. My bad. I was reading from the Hebrew. Uh, Let me read from the English. She also gave some to her husband who was with her and he ate it. And men and women, we don't believe. We just don't believe that sin is dangerous. This right here It's a snake. How many of you are creeped out by afraid of and otherwise would run from snakes? Just see your hands. Good. This will be fun today. What makes this comfortable for me, since I am among the freaked out, creeped out by snakes, is that this is what kind of a snake? A rubber snake. (laughs) And so what's the big deal? See, I'm not afraid of a rubber snake because he can't do anything to me. And here's the deal. We treat sin like it's a rubber snake. And we mess with it and we play with it and we let it in our morals and in our marriage and in our families and in our finances and in the fabric of our lives. And God says, no, sin's a real deal. If you mess with it, you'll die. And we treat it like a rubber snake. 
And nobody cares that I have this rubber snake in the room. It's no big deal. But if we brought a real snake, a venomous snake, and dropped it on the stage, the amperage in this room would substantially change. But we wouldn't do that. <laughs> or would we? <laughs> Maybe we would. And so I'd like to introduce you to some new friends of mine. This is Steve Struggs and his wife, Sharon. And we met them last month when my sons and I went to a motorcycle show. And at the motorcycle show, they had Steve the Snake Handler. He's been handling snakes since he was seven years old, right, Steve? Yes. And in fact, the most important question asked at that moment was, how many times have you been bitten? Zero. And the answer is zero. And we'd like to keep it that way today. Yes, absolutely. So where you are seated, you are perfectly safe. My son and I sat at about this distance, nothing in between us and the snakes. And where you're seated is safe, where I'm seated is semi-safe, where he is is not safe at all. <laughs> so if you would remain calm, we're going to have a moment uh, here. And uh, what do you have in the box, Steve? Western Diamondback. Alive. And that noise I'm hearing? You hear it? Yeah, yeah. that rattle. That's, you hear it? Yeah. It's creeping me out, to tell you honestly, bud. <laughs> Question, how many of you are afraid? I was behind the curtain, I couldn't see. Oh, hands, yeah, I see you way back. Oh, wonderful. Yeah. What does God say in 2 Timothy 1.7? I didn't give you a spirit of fear. I'm beyond the fear part. Replace uh, fear with knowledge. I like my friend Chuck Norris. He was out in Texas making a movie. Walking down a dirt road, Chuck Norris spots a western diamondback coiled up. He turned to his film crew and said, watch this. I have the fastest hands of any man alive in the world. At that time, Chuck did. Chuck was at the top of his game. He said, I'm going to reach down and pick up this western diamondback before he has a chance to bite me. Chuck Norris spent 24 hours in the hospital. <laughs> Chuck is okay, <laughs> but he's a lot smarter today than he used to be. <laughs> Ladies and gentlemen, one of the most dangerous animals on the planet. We have it Texas, Oklahoma, Arizona. I have it here in Georgia for you, the Western Diamondback. I don't know how many of you are in here. I'm going to assume, what, 2,500 roughly? There's enough venom there to kill every one of us. 320 milligrams. All it takes is a pinhead drop. You will look, get to see this morning what I see pretty much every day. Look death in the eye. This is a very dangerous animal. I'm going to take him out and put him right there. Oh, he's very much alive. Can you hear that rattle? Can you hear it? Oh, I like we're this honored to be with better. you this morning. Wow, I see the guy. Sure, Here, let me Let's get take out him of your out. Way. Put him right there on the rug. Here we go. Wow. There you are, sir. That is death. Western Diamondback. You okay, sir? You okay, sir? Don't bite that boot, please. Look at you. Look at you. Look at there. Now, he's done this so many times. We got to see those fangs. Well, what do you do when you're outside and you see a snake? Leave that snake alone, unless you're like me. <laughs> you just got to look at it. Let's look at this snake fangs. Look at that. Watch him. He's going to get upset. Not going to hurt him. Right there, sir. You're okay. You're okay. Easy, easy. 
Easy, easy, right there, wow. Right there, wow. That is looking death in the eye. You'd just love to get that hand, wouldn't you? Look at that tongue come out. Look at that tongue come out. Look at that, touching my finger. Wow, 320 milligrams of venom. We gotta see those fangs. And look at those cold black eyes looking at me. That's what death looks like. Let's see those fangs. Oh, there's one there too, wow. Wow. Can you say wow? Wow. Oh, look at that. Look at that. Hosea 4, 6 says, my people perish because of a lack of knowledge. I have replaced fear with knowledge. I know the snake can kill me. That is looking at death. I got to put him back in the box. What's he going to try to do when I let go of the head? And try to come around and get me. Yes, can't let that happen. What a great specimen. Western Diamondback. Please get right there, sir. Get in that box. Get in that box. Woo! Lock him up. Yeah, let's great give audience. it up Thank for you, Steve Pastor. and Sharon. Come on, give it up, church. That's awesome. Well done. Not as impressive as it first looked, is it? <laughs> and we treat sin like it's a rubber snake. And God has said all along, it's a venomous snake. And sin leads to death. On that day at the motorcycle show when we met Steve and watched his moments of what for me was terror... <laughs> He handed this little rattle to my seven-year-old Jaden. Hear that? You know what that is? That's the sound of sin. It should terrify you every time you come across it, and you should run. But we don't believe it. So we treat a venomous snake like it's a rubber snake, and we let sin into our lives. And you know the funny thing about us is many of us who are even believers in this place agree with what is just taught, and yet we still have our little pet sins that we keep with us as if they're not venomous. And God said, if you sin, you will die. And Adam and Eve sinned, and they did die. Get this, you die relationally. Separated from God, they were kicked out of the garden death to their relationship with God. We lost paradise, and all of us have a sense that there was something we were made for that we don't get to be a part of or enjoy any longer, and we long for a place we've never been. It's in us. We were created for paradise, and it eludes us. We lost it. Everybody dies physically. So far, the stats are very high. One out of every one person born has died. You do know you're going to die. Hang on, you know you're the walking dead. Yes? You don't know the day, you don't know the year, you don't know that, but you know that you are on your way to death. And, and God is saying, you are living the little pieces of your life every day with the awareness that you will die. And it says in scripture, and Adam died. He said you would, you did, we all do. But more than dying physically, we all die spiritually. 
eternally. That we have lost our awareness spiritually. Our discernment is broken. That sound is not clear. We don't understand to run. We don't know how to be afraid and terrified of sin. And therefore we die eternally, separated from God. The Bible calls it hell. Sin leads to death. And our answer to that? Well, in the book of Genesis, our answer was, as mankind, let's go guard and govern ourselves. I can make my own paradise. And from the time of Adam and Eve to the time of the flood, mankind went his own way, created his own rules, dismissed God, and said, I'll create my own paradise. Watch, watch, watch. And failed miserably. The world's judged and destroyed. Mankind loses. What do they do from Noah to the Tower of Babel? They ultimately say, we can't govern ourselves. Let's have a one-world government. We'll govern one another. And we'll create a government system whereby under that system, we can become gods unto ourselves. And we can rise up and we'll create our own paradise. And we still play these games and we still believe this. And what ultimately happened, it was confused. And you end in Genesis 11 with the truth that sin leads to death. And it raises the third and final thing that was settled in Genesis 1 through Genesis 11. You ready for this? Here we go. We are to blame. Get it down, write it down, fill it in, set it in your soul. This is a complicated one for most of us. We are to what? Blame. Say it with me, all four words. Ready? One, two, three. We are to blame. We brought this on ourselves. And listen, this one bothers a lot of us. A lot of us have never solved this one, never settled this one in our soul. We are to blame. See, we don't like where we are in life. We don't like losses. We don't like setbacks. We don't like disease. We don't like death. We get mad at God. The truth of the matter is, though, we're often in places where we are in life because we did it to ourselves. We brought it upon ourselves. This past week, my wife and I, Marsha, we had a serendipitous moment where we were uh, driving in our separate vehicles. I had to pick up Jaden. I was bringing him home. I had to run for a quick errand. She was doing something else. And we ended up on Highway 20 side by side. And it was just like happenstance moments, kind of cute. And Jaden's waving at his mom from the back seat. And it's all cute and fun. And, and we're coming close to home. We're going to take a ride off from 20 onto Azalea Road. And, and uh, I'm just about to pull in front of her in order to do that. And she speeds up. <laughs> and Eve tempted me. And so, being gracious, I flipped on my right blinker to make it obvious what I was attempting to do so she would know, and she sped up again. And now Eve sinned. (laughs) And Adam can't let that happen. (laughs) Because she was really saying, why don't you just slow down, boy, and get behind me and follow me home. And I did slow down and pulled behind her and started following her home, but I had to make clear to my son in the car, my seven-year-old, that Adam doesn't live like that. Adam doesn't lose like that. Adam will win. And so began the game. And so now we have this about half a mile before you hit the stretch of the sharp left turn, and then a half a mile, and it's more country. It's not very dangerous, but it's all double yellow, and you don't pass a double yellow unless Eve has sinned against you. (laughs) And then it's understandable. Then it makes sense. So I'm very cautious. There's no cars coming. I wait till we hit the current turn. And as we come around the turn, look the half a mile ahead of me. Everything's clear, no problem. I know there's officers that sit up the front station. And so for that little three-way, and I make sure there's none sitting there coming out. Because why, why mess up their day? And so, 
And, so, and, and a car pulls out of there, and it's a, a dark car. It's not an officer, and so it's all good. So in about two seconds, I buzz around her little sportier car for a big, you know, thing, machine she drives. And, and I buzz around her, and I'm laughing like crazy. And she's like, I can't believe you did that. And I'm telling my son, see, that's awesome. That's what Adam does. And then that black car in front of me pulled into my lane, stopped, and flipped on its interior red and blue lights because it was an undercover cop. Why are you clapping? What is that about? My wife was laughing so hard. I was laughing I could hardly contain myself and had to stop right in front of the cop. And I did this to myself. Right? Listen, men and women. Many of us are mad at God. But we did it to ourselves. We don't like setback, disease, loss, death. Did you ever lose anybody you love? Somebody you care about? Lost a girlfriend in high school. Hit by a car. Three years of roommate. Both graduated. And one month before his wedding, he was killed. Lost my mom to cancer. That was rough. My brother, 41, to a motorcycle accident. I've lost people I love. And some of us, when we lose, we get angry at God. We're like, God, how could you let bad things happen to good people? And we're not even honest about the third point that we are to blame. Most of the problems and loss and setbacks in our life are because of our own unique sin, and all of them are because of universal sin. And we think we have a case against God, and what if the truth is God has a case against us? Maybe we owe God an apology because we messed up his perfect paradise. That officer has a case against me. And I did it to myself. God has a case against us. And we did it to ourselves. And that is Genesis 1 through 11. Oh, and would you like to know what happened for the rest of my story when I stopped in front of the officer? You want to hear the rest of the story? I'll tell you next week. Because Genesis 11 ends with us in great need. We need help. So you'll have to read Genesis 12 through 15 and see what happens next. And then I'll pick up what happens next when I needed help. And before I turn the service over to the campus pastors, let me give you this question that's on the bottom of your notes. Which one of those three are most unsettled for you.